Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the Poet Laureate of Hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. So I'm talking to Anthony Etherin, and uh, Anthony, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as a poet and publisher and the kind of work that you like to do? Sure. Uh, well, I'm a constraint-based poet, uh, but I, I really consider myself a formalist, and I consider what I'm doing with alphabet-based constraints as an extension of that. So I suppose I'm best known for writing palindromes and anagrams. And can you talk a bit about, for people who don't know, what a palindrome or anagram is? Sure. So uh, an anagram is a phrase which jumbles up the words of another phrase, uh, the letters, in fact. And a palindrome is a phrase that reads the same backwards as forwards by letter. Although there are, uh, as we'll talk about later, there are different ways of, of writing palindromes that maybe don't involve going backwards by letter. So then, I mean, you do other types of writing as well, but in addition to uh, writing anagrams and palindromes, you're also doing this in a relatively complicated way, usually, where, say, you'll often, for example, write a sonnet that is, you know, again, a formal list sonnet, observing all the, you know, rhyme scheme, meter, and so on of, say, a Shakespearean sonnet. But then additionally, we'll have maybe a constraint uh, of reading the same backwards and forwards. So, like, each letter, you know, in sequence, halfway through the poems, you know, it starts to proceed in the backwards sequence. Uh, yeah. So you'll you'll you often uh, you will double up the constraints in in those sorts of ways. Uh, can we just talk a little bit about just before anything else about what you th- attracts you to constraints? Well, I think it was because I, I actually started as a formalist writing traditional poems like sonnets before I was ever inter- interested in anagrams and palindromes. And it was when I learned how to write formal poetry that I first got poetry. So I first, before that I was, I was in a band, a bit like you, and I was, so I was writing song lyrics and I suppose I relied on the music to guide me. And then when I started writing poetry, I was writing free verse and I just, I just questioned why I was bothering because it didn't make any sense to me that there was no structure there behind it. Sure. So then I started to learn about about uh, iambic pentameter and all these different forms that have existed for so long. And I just really got into it. And so then when I started to look at what else was out there in terms of form and what else could guide me, I discovered palindromes, I discovered anagrams. And I think from there it was just quite a natural step for me to try and combine them with the other poetry I was writing. Now, I personally don't, when I do poetry, I don't use as many constraints as you do, but I do very much believe in a level of constraint 
whether it's visible or not. Um, and I, when I teach creative writing, the first thing I teach anybody, whether in a creative writing class or in a literature class where they're just studying uh, literature, uh, I'll do the same first lesson, which is when I make them write a descriptive passage, like a paragraph or a few sentences about an orange, but they can't use the letter O. So they can't use the word orange, uh, of course, to describe the object directly. They have to describe it in a, in a roundabout way. They can't describe its color uh, with reference to, you know, orange. They can't say it's round. I mean, all the normal words that they could use to, that they would normally use to describe uh, an orange, they can't use. Um, so I get them to do this, again, whether it's a creative writing class or a literature class. And I, the way I sort of move them into uh a kind of literary mindset, as it were, is by sort of making them notice that because they aren't using the normal language that they would normally use, they have to use a sort of alienated approach and this alienated kind of language. Uh, they accidentally, whether they intended to or not, start producing something like poetry. Um, and then I just kind of move off that into like some other lessons. But to me, like there's a level at which that... Um, you don't need a constraint necessarily to be producing literature, but the constraint really is an enabling feature uh, that helps you produce literature, even though at the same time, it's hard to perform under these constraints. Um, and so I'm curious to know, like, if, if that is sort of one of the reasons, is that sort of also sort of something that attracts you to being, say, more of a formalist or interesting constraints? Or is there some other thing that you find particularly intriguing about constraints? Well, certainly, it's it's nice not to have to worry about inspiration. I don't have to, I don't have days where I'm sitting at the computer and I'm desperately trying to get this lightning bolt to inspire me because all I have to do is apply a process. I choose I choose a topic, I decide which constraints I want to use to write about that topic, and then I, I can just get to work. It's a puzzle. So that's now. very nice. So it's like a puzzle now instead of you know having to. How oh yeah, news definitely. strike you or whatnot? Yeah, and it's uh, it, having having worked in the other in other arts, like as a musician, it's quite nice to have that. It's quite nice to know that I, every day, if I want to write a poem, I can. And I think uh, a, lo a lot of people would be quite jealous of that fact. What do you say to people who have uh, like feel that somehow putting these constraints on their writing is going to make it harder for them? to be creative, you know, and the restrictions are going to limit them. Uh, well, it's as you said, it, it almost automatically becomes poetry once you've applied this process because you're having to think how you wouldn't normally. And it, it can actually be quite limiting to have complete freedom because you really then, you know, you, you will not be thinking as you the poet you'll be thinking as you the everyday person and you will, you'll be your natural language will come into it which is fine for certain types of poetry but the poetry i find more interesting always has that sort of alien element that alien voice to it that isn't quite a normal human when i when i teach creative writing i often will uh, ask the students to pay attention to when their writing and things are going well as a possibly dangerous moment <laughs> because so often what you what i find generally speaking is so often when the writing is going well and is easy to do uh you're just reproducing things you've seen elsewhere or that like if you're trying to write a short story for example 
And it's just like, oh, these characters are telling me what to do, quote unquote, you know, uh, the way that the writers, the characters are talking to me, the characters are just, you know, leading me. So often when I find that happening, it's just they're doing the things I've seen other characters like this do in other books. And it's, uh, it is because I've reproduced a cliche that I think it's, it's natural and, and it feels recognizable. I, you had mentioned music. I always go back to when I was in a band and we were having a hard time coming up with a new song once. We were just having this drought where we just couldn't come up with like some good riffs, you know, a good song. And we're just sitting around, you know, like for week after week, just struggling to like come up with a cool new song. Finally, our guitarist like starts riffing. We had two techniques. One is we would start playing numbers out of a phone book. So we would get like power chords and we'd play like, you know, seven, five, seven, three, five, oh, three or something. And uh, just try to like see, could we come up with cool number, like songs that way? Because we had no better idea. But then I remember distinctly, there was one moment where the guitarist started playing this riff and he's like, hey, check this out. He starts playing this amazing, like simple, but really cool riff. And we started jamming this song out off this riff. And all of a sudden, like probably about an hour into this, of like developing this song all of a sudden i was like wait 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 stop 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 everything i'm like that's tnt by acdc <laughs> and it was note for note uh it was tnt uh but we but it, but it seemed to flow so effortlessly and it sounded like a song you know like if you're again you know from your musician days you may remember when things are going so well it, it's you're writing a song but it it sounds like you heard the song before or like it's so natural, it's so clearly a song, and it can be good or it can be dangerous. You know, I find that same thing applies to literature myself, I, uh, and those constraints can really help, uh, as you put it, because that freedom yeah, is be- just because that's being a uh, freedom really is being in art anyway is being constrained by your unconscious. Yeah, just you're following the whims of your unconscious, and as you point out, your unconscious could have picked up something from elsewhere. Whereas yeah. at least you, you can sort of trust your your focused conscious mind to be doing something uh, with so much intent that it isn't borrowed work. So um, can we look at a couple of really specific examples uh, from your newest books? You've got a book right out called Stray Arts uh, right now, which includes a lot of, uh, it's a very long uh, book with a lot of, you know, really diverse work in it. And you've organized it in these, you know, kind of interesting sections. Um, I'm really interested in a, f- a few particular p- poems here, uh, and I was wondering if bu- you could maybe start with reading these two Frankenstein sonnets and tell us a little bit about them, and then maybe we could get a little bit into like how you would actually go about writing a poem like that in a really practical and like st- uh, straight, like like what what are the actual techniques you might use? Because I, as I was saying to you before we kind of started uh, recording here, like I myself don't do a lot of really strict constraints like this. And I'm sometimes at a loss for how to explain to other people how to do them. Uh, although I can give a lot of examples and I can tell them like how it's working. It, it, like I myself have had a hard time when I've tried uh, this kind of work, actually figuring out where to you know start. But if you could read this Frankenstein sonnets maybe as a, as a starting point, that'd be uh, great. Okay. So this is the, the palindromic Frankenstein sonnet. Deeds, lives allay me. Man, not law, decide. End loyal rot, civilian, as a god. Parts mix a monster, frets no maker tide. A menace, 
voltage plate me, rip a rod. Pale soon to rot, stuck carcass, end asleep. Dial sun, age, beggar raven egg of doom. Moored on an idol here, we rift far creep. I peer, craft fire, we're held in anode, room. Mood, fog, Geneva, rage, beganus, laid. Peel sadness, a crack cuts to rot, noose, lap. Do wrap ire, metal peg, at love, cane made. I trek, a monster frets, no maxims trap. Dog, as a nail, I victor lay, old need. Iced Walton, name my all as evil's deed. So shall I talk about that one first? Yeah, maybe uh, let's talk about that first. So you've got two songs here. So that's the first one you, is that the first one of the two you wrote? I assume you would have to, because uh, the other one's an anagram. Um, so when you started working on the uh, this particular sonnet, could you just maybe start at the very beginning of like when might what what's your thought process in terms of like deciding to write Frankenstein sonnets? Like where does the uh, it first come from that you're going to write sonnets about Frankenstein with these kinds of constraints? Uh, well, first of all, I I love the novel, so that's, sure. <laughs> I tend to I only write about things I'm I'm really uh, passionate about, uh, and I, it, it's not the first palindromic sonnet I've written. Like there several before and it seemed like a really cool subject for it because there are i noticed some words that you could actually use in a palindrome i think uh, in the last line they've got the mention of walton referring to captain walton which backwards is not law hmm. so that helps generate the first line with man not law decide which is kind of the the idea behind the whole novel so and then Writing any palindrome, what I find is, I because I've picked a topic and decided to write a palindrome, I make a list of all the relevant words. Uh, and it's quite good fun because you, a lot of the time you've got very unique nouns to use for each subject. So I make a list of them, then I write them backwards. And I think, well, how can that, how would that work? How does this fit? And it, it, it was really good writing about Frankenstein because it, I felt like I was stitching together these uh, small disembodied pieces into something whole and uh, yeah so that and then of course it, it is a sonnet it's a shakespearean sonnet in iambic pentameter uh, but again with with each palindromic sonnet i've written they're, they're all different and they're all looking for different things and so this one you may, may notice has no enjambment and in fact some of the lines have two or three sentences to them and again that's the idea of stitching together small chunks so, so you're in many ways starting with these little building up these library of chunks in, in a manner of speaking. Like for example, just to, just to, if I understand you correctly, so you're going to start out with say you know we've got this idea you can write about Frankenstein in a palindrome uh, poem of some sort. You've got uh, you're going through you're finding like you're writing down words that are specific or you know relevant to the book. So you might write again character names like Walton and Victor. Um, Geneva and so on uh, and maybe probably thematic things right like you're probably going to write words like man or god or you know corpse yeah, or what have you yeah. so then it, you, you you mentioned like not law Walton backwards is not law so that's a, a handy sort of uh, pre-made one but for something like Victor I assume you're looking at Victor and you're thinking okay well backwards is rot and then CIV rot's a word CIV is not but maybe after it could come you know, that could be yeah, civic, civilian. it could be civilian. It ends up being civilian in this case. So you're sort of like cycling through maybe what are the possibilities 
uh, in terms of like what materials, might, as you say, might I use to stitch together a poem the way that maybe Frank and Victor's, you know, looking at this, these raw materials and trying to stitch together the monster. Um, so, so what point do you decide to do to take it things this other step of making it a sonnet or making it a Shakespearean sonnet and what have you? Well, like I said, just, you know, this is a, yeah, this is a, it's just the idea of combining two passions of mine, I suppose. And yeah, you, to, to write it though, you, you have to start at the beginning and the end at the same time and then work towards the middle, hmm. which brings its own challenges. Cause you can't, I'm trying to sort of tell the story of the novel, but I'm not writing in any sort of linear way. It's all just being like I said, stitched together because, uh, and as you pointed out, the, the way to do it is to you have letters hanging off that you then have to satisfy on the other side. Uh, and it's very easy these days in a certain respect because you can just Google words ending in L-I-A-N. And, and there you are. The, you'll, you'll find a website somewhere that's, that's got a list of these words. You, so then you take your pick and you see what works best for the for what you're trying to say. Are you trying to do this in a spreadsheet or like, are you, are you sitting in word, like trying different things out? Like, I'm curious to know, like how you would actually organize all this material. I, I write everything directly into Microsoft word. Wow. Uh, maybe, maybe there are easy ways. Oh, well, there's a Sestina in my book, uh, the palindromic Sestina, which is obviously 39 mm -hmm. lines long. Uh, I did use a, a table for that. Because it was it was too unwieldy. It's it's a fascinating uh, you know set of methods. So so you know, but in a shorter poem, fourteen lines. I mean, it's still quite hard to write a sonnet often for people to begin with. Never mind, you know, add this level of being a palindrome to it. Uh, but as you say, you're sort of in some ways like building it from these stitched together fragments. And then you're starting you're you're kind of writing from both sides and meeting in the middle, and then doing whatever you know rewriting you you have to do to kind of make that sensible and so on because you're all you're still like using sentences and uh so on like there's a lot of people don't think about the constraints that are already existing in anything they try to do like if you talk like the fact that you're using grammar as a constraint which you know yeah. people don't think about often as you say like there's these unconscious constraints whether you know and um when you think you're being free <laughs> um yeah. and i think one of the things that i find so interesting about this kind of work is how uh, it just bring and, and when I do use constraints myself is it just helps to so much to bring to the fore um, those things you would otherwise maybe just automatically do. I find so much writing personally is just not doing the automatic thing uh, because it's just usually not as interesting as something you could come up with. Although once in a while, you know, you'll hit you you'll have that you know moment of inspiration or what have you but i find yeah. for the most part it's just a lot of slog and work and, and it helps to treat things like a puzzle as you as you as you kind of you know say now when you're going to write the anagram version of this so so now when you've uh at what point would you pick a poem like this you so you write this poem let's say you know i'm going to write a frankenstein sonnet in, as a palindrome at what point do you decide to go the extra mile of ad, rewriting it as an anagrammatic sonnet oh the, the anagram sonnet is its own thing really it's uh the lines are anagrams oh yes sorry so uh, so, there is one later in the book that's 
that's two sonnets that's the other anagrams so this this particular anagram sonnet uh just so just before you read it just to be clear then it's a sonnet of 14 lines each line has the same letters in a different order yeah okay and again it's uh, like the like the palindrome sonnet it's another shakespearean sonnet iambic pentameter okay shall i read it yes please one scans prometheus i've taken fire a permanence of suns i seek to thrive from oaths uneven taken pieces sire a creature in the mess of open knives one notice sparks a fever in the muse naive the monster faces europe's kin a one-time riven sun the packs refuse the menace spikes an overture of sin met hopes see victor in a sunken fear I'm stricken per one's avenues of hate. I speak no eve, it forces, hunts me near. Pines over ice, no sun, the maker's fate. The furnace I took passes, never mine. Time over, pauses echo, Frankenstein. So, again, we've got a Shakespearean sonnet there, and you're anagramming it line for line. So I assume, in this case, are you actually starting with the first line, or are you starting with a different line? That should then. Well, yeah, the luxury here that you don't get with the palindrome is that you can write a series of lines and then figure out which order to put them in. Oh, I see. Sure. This does make it easier. So, do you remember where you started with this particular sonnet? Well, with these kind of poems, again, I'm looking at the nouns and the, the important words from the novel, and I'm making sure that the set of letters I've got can include some of these words. So, so Frankenstein would be an obvious one. Frankenstein, uh, yeah, Frankenstein, uh, Victor, again. Uh, I remember really wanting to make sure I could get Prometheus out of it because there's no way I was getting Prometheus in the palindrome. So sure. it, had to, it had to be in the anagram. Now, maybe you didn't work precisely this way, but let's say you wanted to write a poem where you have both the word Frankenstein and the word Prometheus. Now, they don't necessarily have to be on the same line, but they've got to be in these anagrammed lines. So then are you then sort of looking at like, okay, if I've got Frankenstein and I've got Prometheus, what words do they, letters do they have in common? What letters do they not have in common? Like, are you sort of, sort of start trying to get a vocabulary of a, like a single line or two uh, mapped out in that manner first before you start moving on? Yeah, uh, I want to, and it's good when there's an overlap of the letters because the more phrases you can find that way for example if, if i if i have prometheus and frankenstein and there's an overlap of four or five letters I, haven't, I don't know how many it is i can't see from here but then that means i can add more letters and more nouns uh, more important words without the the line be ending up like 50 characters long which would be crazy for a line that's meant to be iambic pentameter Sure. So they're even like the iambic pentameter as a constraint is sort of in some ways enabling you to figure out how long this line needs to be roughly uh, that I'm going to reconstitute, um, you know, giving you sort of a limit and also like a, a starting point in a manner of speaking. It's got to be long enough, but also not too long. Um, yeah, I think it's about 25 to 35 letters is that, is that sort of area. And then... Um, uh, once you have, you know, maybe a, a line or two figured out in terms of, okay, this is the set of letters I'm going to work with. Uh, at that point, are you just sort of scrambling? Like, what's your process in terms of, like, getting the new vocabulary out of these letters? Like, how, how do you actually kind of move towards generating other lines? Yeah, there's a point where you just have to commit to it and 
you can try, you can have a few false starts, but once I think, I think once I'm about four lines in, I'm not going to go back and start again. I've, I've just got to find whatever I possibly can out of the existing letters. And obviously there's, you know, it's, it's a long editorial process. I tend to, I like to work quickly. So I like to get, I like to get something down within the first session of writing. So even if that session of writing is 10 hours straight, I like to have a finished poem. But then, of course, the next day I'll go back to it, and then the day after that, for about, I don't know, a couple of months. Wow. <laughs> and the poems keep changing all the time, and I'm still, you know, looking, I'm looking at these now thinking, oh, I could, I could improve that. I could, I could change something else. That's the danger of ever opening your own book. Uh, somebody once asked yeah. me, like, you know, isn't it great to read a book you've written? And I was like, I've never, I never read these books. <laughs> the last thing I want to do is read this book again. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. If you pay that, me, makes... I'll read it. <laughs> Literally, you have to pay me for me to read my own book. <laughs> but uh, um, how many? So this is a fourteen-line poem, of course. But like, how many lines would you actually write in the course of putting together a fourteen-line poem like this? It would probably probably be double, I would say. At least, wow. Well, because yeah. then you're also figuring out like a sequence for them. So you may be writing them out of sequence, potentially. And then starting to figure out how they might come together, say, to make... Because in this particular poem, uh, many of them are enjammed, uh, moving on, or, yeah. or, or otherwise, like, you've got it, two lines making up a sentence or, or what have you. Although they'll have, you know, s you know, like, from O's uneven, taken pieces, sire, a creature, in the mess of open knives. So those are two lines that maybe you wrote them around the same time, but theoretically you could have written one and then written the other, you know, sometime apart from one another. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it's, and it's all about finding the right lines for each other as well. I mean, I think, I don't know whether with this one, but certainly with some of these, I've written some really good lines that haven't ended up in the finished poem simply because they just didn't complement the other lines. And that's really frustrating. <laughs> there we are. Do you do anything with those lines? Do you keep, save them for possible future use or do you just, you know, kill your darlings in that sense? Yeah, I mean, they have to go, unless I decide to intentionally write two sonnets that use the same letters in each line. Now, we're just using example two sonnets here, but you don't always write sonnets necessarily. And and also, if you're going to anagram, another way to anagram, of course, is to find a source text from elsewhere uh, and, you know, just reproduce that source text in some sort of anagrammatic fashion. So, you know, uh, there's a couple of different ways people do that. Um, so one way I've seen is, of course, uh, let's say somebody takes Shakespeare's sonnet and they produce another sonnet where each line is anagrammed. You know, so maybe the first line you anagram into the first line, second line you anagram into another second line, and so on. That's one way that people will approach anagrams for, with the source text. Another way is, say, you've got a Shakespeare sonnet, you write some other text that has anagrams that whole, as opposed to going line by line, and so on and so forth. Uh, when you're doing different kinds of anagrams, like when you're anagramming from a source text like that, however you're doing it, what are some things that you look for in a source text to figure out, you know, oh, this might be a good one to anagram or what have you? That's a good question. I mean, there is one thing I've noticed just, and this is something I picked up from trial and error is that you, you want about for a good anagram, you want about 40% of the characters to be vowels. Hmm. So if you see something and it looks very consonant heavy, you know, avoid it. And of course, then it's, I suppose, obviously as well, if it's, it's full of Z and X and Q, then perhaps you give that a miss as well. 
Uh, there are the, the 10, 10 most popular letters in the alphabet, if I get this right, E-T-A-O-I-N-S-H-R-L, I think. I'm sure so, you're right. I always think of Wheel of Fortune, you know, R-S-T-A-L-N-E. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but so you're looking for common letters, you're looking for a high, you know, uh, amount of vowels, because, of course, you need vowels for words in English. Um, you're looking to maybe have not few or not many um, uh, uh, hard to use consonants. Um, are there other things you would maybe like, is there like a length where an anagram becomes diff- too difficult or, or maybe even too easy? Um, I, don't, I don't know about too easy. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. I, it's, it's surprising though. I, I don't think too difficult either. I, th- I think it's a strange thing that it's, it's something we don't notice, but when you see, say, 25 or 30 letters together, uh, a mathematician will tell you that you've got a lot of combinations there. But intuitively, when we see it, we don't realize that. It doesn't seem like there, there are that many options. But there, there really are a lot. So uh, the longest one I've done is uh, there's, uh, again, a Sestina in Stray Arts. And that's, so that's 39 lines, for which I wrote about 80 lines. So I feel like I could have done more as well. Is that fairly typical that you're writing more or less twice as many lines with these poems as you're going to be able to end up using, or is it hard to say? It's, it depends how lucky I get. But yeah, I'd, I'd say around that many. Now, you also invented uh, a particular constraint uh, poetry. I don't know if you would you call it a form or is it an operation or what what have, what, what would you consider the alien germ to be? I don't know because I don't really know what I call anagrams and palindromes. So apart, yeah, apart I'm from not sure offhand, but it's constraint so regardless. So, can you talk a bit about this constraint of the alien germ, uh, what it is, and how you kind of started to find it interesting and come across it and so on? Yeah, well, about I, st- I only started writing palindromes ten years ago, and about two years into that, I was writing a palindrome about Albert Einstein, and so I was using things like sprawl warps. Uh, you, you have uh, you can get uh, space time into a palindrome too, which is nice, uh, and deep space and things like that. So lots of good words for writing about Einstein. But I was annoyed that I couldn't use the name Einstein. And so, so that was bugging me a bit, but, you know, never mind. And But then I just, I can't remember how it happens exactly. I just noticed that actually if you read it backwards by every two letters instead of by every single letter, you get the word intense. Hmm. So Einstein backwards by every two letters is it's in, intense and then there's an I after that. So I thought, well, you could actually write palindromes that way. So intense, I am Einstein is a palindrome by every two letters. And and this is something that, you know, since discovering that, I've been looking for elsewhere. And it seems like in 2,000 years of people writing palindromes, no one's done that before. And I don't really, I don't quite believe that. I'm sure somebody somebody must have. But anyway, after so after writing these, well, well, palindromes by pairs, I, the next logical step was to write them by every three letters or every four letters. And then so this led me to 
invent this constraint or form or whatever we're going to call it uh, called the alindrome which varies the unit of palindromism so for example the phrase melody a bloody elm is an alindrome in the sequence one two three four because the units underpinning it are one two three four three two one you've got the melody m that's a, that's the one that reflects as the last word of elm and then el are the next two letters which are the el of elm and then you've got the ody uh, as the next unit it's quite it's difficult to explain without writing it down so um now so is that varying them in that particular sort of way which you call the alindrome or is yeah. the alindrome just anytime you're doing a palindrome by pairs uh, i consider palindromes by pairs their own thing sure uh and because then, I, I think because the unit is still the same whether it's one or two or three it's still the same whereas in an alindrome the unit is changing constantly according to a premeditated numerical palindrome and where did you come with the name alindrome how does that name come about uh well it actually came from our friend's uh, christian book because i was calling these things heterogeneous palindromes as opposed to sure. the homogeneous <laughs> palindrome and uh I think, uh, yeah, Christian told me that was a bit unwieldy. <laughs> so I decided, well, what about ethrindrome? That's, that's okay. I think <laughs> someone, someone suggested that as well, and it, it appealed to my ego. Uh, and then, yeah, and then, then Christian said, well, how about your, just your initials then, A-E, lindrome. So A-lindrome. I like it because it can, alien is an anagram of alien. <laughs> and they seem to make a very alien, you know, strange form. Uh, so I, I kind of appreciate that name. I don't know if that's an intentional thing at all, but the, now the one I would really like you to read is geometry. So geometry is alindromic in pi, in tw the first 20 digits of pi, in fact, which means that the unit varies according to these first 20 digits until we get to the 20th digit, which happens to be four, and then the sequence reverses. So, uh, and this is, is about geometry. So geometry, alindrome in pi. I nest a cone, index angles in via, a concave, pentatangential in a pit. Hypotenuse up, we closeteer phrase or line, a plane or linear, a sphere. We close, then use up a pithy potential in a tangent cave per a convex angle. Sine, indent a cosine. So how, it, what's the strategy in trying to write alien drums? Do you basically approach them like a palindrome, or is there some special way that you have to approach writing in this, uh, this way? It's very much like a palindrome in that you will end up with these letters hanging off that need to be then corrected the other side. And so it is just a back and forth from between the beginning and the end. Of course, though, you can't find words as easily, and there are no sort, there are no tropes or cliches of palindromes because they they just exist. Whereas, obviously, with palindromes, you've got years and years of people coming up with these short phrases you can manipulate. 
So I, just to kind of backtrack a little bit then, uh, so one thing that, of course, a person who wants to write anagrams and palindromes could do is just read a whole bunch of them, if only because then they're going to absorb some of the tropes <laughs> and be able to see yeah. like some of the you know common uh, things that y- y- one can do. I know in rap music you see that all the time. Like there's like certain f- words that nicely like fit in places uh, that you know grammatically speaking um, they can fit all anywhere in a sentence almost. <laughs> and then additionally yeah. like there's two syllables taking up space now and so on. Um, so there's like tropes that come out in every art form in that way. And so anagrams and palindromes have yeah. their own tropes, but it can be helpful or, or harmful, I guess, if you're reproducing them too much. Yeah. It's a bit like rhyme. I think, mm-hmm. that, you know, there are lots of poems that rhyme death with breath, but that it's not necessarily a bad thing if, if you use that because it's a good rhyme. So, you know, those two words feel destined for each other, don't they? In a way. So it's, it'd be a shame to avoid every cliche just because, it's a cliche. But at the same time, um, so, so on one hand, just having the background in the genre or in like, you know, the form is going to help somebody write these things. Uh, although with, you know, alien drones, maybe not so much. <laughs> are, there, are there special things that you have to do differently when trying to write an alien drone like this that has a complicated, you know, number sequence versus say a simple one? It's actually a, a little bit easier writing one of these, something in pi, because you, among the numbers, you get nines and eights and sevens, and, and having a big number is quite easy. You can just put a word in there, really. Hmm. It, so it, it's a lot easier than a sequence like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. That would, you know, that's quite a lot harder. And then... What do you tracks you about these elandromes? Is it the novelty of you know, having to work harder in a way because there are no tropes? That that would be part of it, definitely. Uh, there's also just the ego side of it that I'm, I'm proud to have invented something, so I need to I need to keep writing them to uh, to spread them around the world. Uh, although I don't write that many, to be honest, I, I still write more palindromes than alandromes by far. So there's obviously something that's not quite as enjoyable about doing them. Is that your favorite thing to write as a palindrome, or do you have some? Is there some particular constraints you just like more than others? Yeah, it's palindrome. Palindromes are so much fun once you once you get into them, uh, and you just can't. It also becomes addictive. So it's difficult to tell what's what I'm doing because of it's fun and what, and what I'm doing just because I can't help myself. Uh, you know, I, I read everything backwards, and if I see something. <laughs> You know, if I if I see a word that I could possibly use in a palindrome, then I have to write that palindrome. Sure. So it it's a compulsion, really. It is really a generative thing too. I mean, one thing I think is just so useful and interesting about constraints, as, as I mentioned before, is they're very generative. And so often people complain to me that they have no ideas or something, or they don't, you know, they they don't have any good ideas. <laughs> I'll often say to them well there's no difference between a good and a bad idea really um you know hamlet is a terrible idea for a play uh, in many respects uh and but you know it, it's that execution that makes so much of the difference and i always advise people if they don't know what to write they should open the refrigerator and write what's in their refrigerator <laughs> and if they if they truly don't know what to write just list it all out and now you've got a list poem give it a, a funky title 
uh, like things I'll take, you know, to my grave, <laughs> you know, or, or what, whatever, like bare minimum, if you, uh, you know, just have some text on a piece of paper and then you contrast it against a, a title that doesn't seem to fit it, you've alienated things enough that you've got uh, some sort of literature there, whether you, you know, whether it's good or not. Um, and and it, once you start to add constraints, you know, uh, in terms of what you're putting on that page, again, you're going to automatically move into these places where it, it becomes more like a game or a puzzle. And I think on one hand, it's more enjoyable for, often for people than the pressure to say, uh, come up with a genius idea. You know, you're just really trying to put a puzzle together. Uh, so there's a lot less at stake emotionally, I think. And, and consequently, people can, you know, maybe uh, do a better job, uh, ironically or, or paradoxically, perhaps. Now, you're yeah. also... It, sorry. I was going to say, it doesn't have to be about... Uh, I mean, perhaps puzzle is the wrong word. Perhaps it's more just about having... I think uh, last time we spoke, you said uh, it's about having an architecture. Sure. It's that. It's, it's knowing which gaps to fill in you know you've got you've got the framework there and then you're just doing all the work to to turn it into something original yeah i I think that it can i mean i don't always use constraints but i certainly if i am scheduled to write um and i don't and i just like have the flu or something like i'll just pull like a constraint or a procedure out and you know like I remember the last time I had the flu and I really wanted to like a really, really bad flu, but I was, you know, going to try to, you know, write anyway. <laughs> I just uh, started Googling reviews of 50 shades of gray. Um, and also people complaining about conceptual poetry. And so I Googled first the phrase, I hate conceptual poetry, thinking I would write a conceptual poem and I couldn't turn up any results. <laughs> I thought, how could this be? <laughs> Surely somebody hates conceptual poetry. And then I, you know, I somehow from there, I just thought, well, what do people really hate? People hate that Fifty Shades of Grey book. So I started like pulling together like Fifty Shades of Grey reviews. And I put like, I hate conceptual poetry as the heading. Um, and just started like taking, I just started swapping words out. Uh, so that these bad reviews of Fifty Shades of Grey became, you know, about conceptual poetry. This, because again, there's all about bondage and constraint, <laughs> you know, this person who feels like, attracted to these procedures while at the same time, you know, uh, maybe, you know, uh, disliking the whole experience and so on and so forth. And I find so often, like, there's really fun and weird and interesting things you can uh, generate. Uh, when, when, as you say, said before, you sort of take your ego out of it or your, and, and, and stop, like, um, uh, just acting unconsciously but then there's a procedure and, and what have you and i was just personally i find like anytime i do kind of delve into constraints a bit more it's it does have that sort of it's a real spur to creativity what i'll often do personally is i'll use a constraint just to generate ideas and then i'll just drop the constraint because i'm not as interested in constraints uh, i'm not as much of a formalist as you know maybe other people would be or you would be but i still find like um I still think I am a foremost in some levels, but then um, I find the constraints just to be so generative as opposed to, you know, restrictive. And in, in, Although, of course, they're technically restrictive. Yeah, it's, it's the idea, again, of avoiding avoiding writer's block, I suppose, avoiding mm -hmm. not, not having the inspiration that hitting you or having to, you know, having to rely on something external to inspire you. Can we talk a little bit about yourself as a publisher? So you've got, um, so Stray Arts... Uh, 
comes out with Pentarac Press, which is uh, your publishing company, uh, which you know publishes um, some of your own work. You've published a number of anthologies. You've published uh, my friend Derek Ballou, uh you, you did a book of his uh, con- con- visual poetry from him. Um, so can you talk a bit about Pentarac Press and like how you sort of started the press and what um, its sort of vision is and uh, and so on, like yourself as a publisher? Well, Pentrack Press is basically, it, it's there to publish the kind of things I like to write uh, and that I'm interested in, which is formalism of all kinds, really. Uh, I tend to think of the three, three pillars of formalism, which are the traditional metered poetic forms, constraints, as we've discussed, and then visual poetry. And so uh, Stray Arts features all, all these things. And Pentry Press was set up to promote this side of poetry in a world that seems to be increasingly dominated by lyrical free verse. I thought it'd be fun to, to try to promote the other, the, the more uh, structured works. And how, how is it different to work as a publisher? <laughs> I know it's, it's kind of a weird and broad question, but I, I talk to so many people who um, they want to publish their own work, and I often stop them and ask, do you really, though? <laughs> do you want to publish your own work and be a publisher? Uh, or do you want to be published uh, and be a writer? <laughs> and you know, mm. both can be the case, but I find often only one is the case. Uh, but as a person who's actually, you know, interested in publishing, you know, again, who's, you know, doing a lot of publishing of other people, um, what do you think it, it takes distinct from the skills of writing? Like what are the special skills you think you need or you found useful as a publisher? I don't know if that's a clear question exactly, but like, like what, what was, how is it, it isn't. like, how has it been different from maybe what you might've uh, expected when you were just kind of looking at it from the outside? Well, I guess I mean, to answer that, I have to go back to how, what happened when I started doing this, which was my intention was just to do leaflets and that single fold leaflets even. So really uh, small scale, simple things. I had no idea that we'd ever end up doing books. So that, that's a very, it's a very cheap, easy way to, to get poetry out into the world. So the pressure was off then and it was, it was just fun. I was just, just experimenting with it. I didn't know that I would end up enjoying designing books as much as I have done. It's, I was just doing it out of necessity because I wanted to publish leaflets of my poetry and, and of other poets whose work I admire. And then just I just discovered in the process of doing that, that I enjoy it. I, and I, I wanted a bigger challenge than just designing a leaflet. I wanted to start uh, making books. But even then, the, the first book we did, which was one of mine, just a short collection of my poems from Twitter. Is that Seller? Yeah. Yeah, when I made that, I, I had no idea that we would end up shifting our focus to books entirely. That was just meant to be a one-off, just for fun. And again, it was fun, and I, I enjoyed it. So, so yeah, we, a couple of years ago, we decided we would shift to books exclusively. So, I mean, I guess to answer your question, then, I, I think we would only be we're only doing it because I like designing books. 
and it's a lot of work getting everything right uh typesetting uh and the, the tedium of making sure that everything's aligned correctly on every page and it's consistent uh kerning which is a nightmare <laughs> lots of lots of things that you, you you would only do it if you're really passionate about it can you explain briefly what kerning is for people who don't know because i, I remember when i learned about kerning and what a nightmare it was <laughs> yeah well I, I only learned about it from running the press i didn't know about it beforehand it's it's reducing the space between letters uh, certain certain letters it, uh, will look wrong in most fonts uh, a capital w for example next to a lowercase a the gap between those two letters looks too big so you have to manually reduce the gap it's yeah i, I remember when i first heard about it i thought that's who's doing that that's <laughs> that's an insane thing to do but once you see it you can't unsee it and so now I, I have to pay attention to these things a lot of publishers will also use ligatures you know remember when i first learned about ligatures you know for book design and you know just yeah uh baffling um where, where you're sort of like instead of an f and an i beside each other you might have some special character that combines an F and an I with the special sort of kerning. Sometimes they'll take the, uh, the kind of line that goes across in the middle of the F and push it to the I, <laughs> you know, uh, dot of the I. And, you know, there's all sorts of really specific, weird design issues that I don't think it's, people don't know. Ideally, a person doesn't notice when they're reading a book, but it's nevertheless yeah. making that kind of unconscious and, you know, impression in terms of how it looks. Yeah, and it's all there ultimately to make things clearer for the reader, whether they know it or not. Uh, small caps, you have to uh, increase the spacing a little bit for small caps. But they're just, yeah, there are all these, all these things. So how did you go about learning that stuff? Like as you kind of move towards, you know, doing some publishing projects, I, I think it's very useful for writers to educate themselves in terms of how publishing works, if only because... If they're going to work with other publishers, they should be able to recognize what those publishers are doing <laughs> and yeah. appreciate it. You know, send them a gift basket now and again <laughs> or what have you. But uh, I think also it's uh, something that I think a writer should learn, even if they don't ever intend to do it themselves. Um, well, I think it's helped my poetry. I, I really do, because poetry is such a visual thing anyway. You want you know how the poem looks on the page is very important to it. So if you know a few basics of uh, design, it really does help. Do you find yourself writing differently because you know the design elements? I don't know how much it changes the words, but it, cert it certainly does change how I lay the poem out. I know that I've recently uh, found myself rewriting almost every poem in my last book because I didn't like how it looked uh, in print layout because I had written the lines too long because um, I was mostly doing these free verse poems and <laughs> and I had not been paying attention. I don't tend to write lineated poems. Uh, I mean, at least in print. I, I, I tend to write a lot of them and then not print them. Um, and I've been mostly doing like prose poetry. But then once I started to like, you know, really produce a lot of these, even when I did a sonnet or a rhyme poetry, I was doing it in prose form often. Like I'd observe all the uh, requirements, but I would just do it in prose. Um, and then... Uh, I, I just didn't think to do things like just change the margins in Word 
<laughs> you know, when I was composing and, and, and things like this. Uh, and I found myself rewriting a lot of it just, again, so it would look decent on the page. I didn't have, like, a poem that had, like, 20 different, you know, hang uh, indents in it and, and what have you. Um, and I think that another thing that is just useful for writers to think about in terms of public, one, just to be educated about what publishers are doing and what, you know, it looks good or it, or is, like, a normal thing to happen in a book. Uh, I think another, another thing that's kind of useful is if people are, uh, thinking about self-publishing in any sort of way, whether, you know, as a large-scale thing they're going to just take into their hands or something they're going to do on occasion with special projects, I think it helps to really just have, like, a, an education in there. But I, but I think it's hard to find that education. Like, what did you do to, to sort of determine, like, to learn more about publishing? Well, it's all been learned as I go. And I've realized there's a, there is a lot. There's a lot you have to know and a lot you have to do. Uh, you can do the, a sort of self-publishing print-on-demand. You could take that path. But I don't think many people are buying those books. Uh, it, well, it probably depends on the nature of the book. I'm not sure if a lot of poetry sells that way. Well, I think you're certainly you you don't like doing hardcover book like this becomes it's possible to do in print on demand, but it's harder to do in a manner, and it often doesn't look well. Like the like print on demand tech has gotten pretty good. Uh, I was sent recently an Oxford University Press book that I already owned, and I knew the second I got it that they were using print on demand. <laughs> now it was very good, but it was still like they, I they had gone from printing books to doing print on demand. Uh, books for whatever reason a lot of larger presses are doing this now for their backlist after they run a print run out they don't necessarily want to do a new print run uh, but they still want to have the book in print say um so even though the tech has gotten very very good i still had that moment where i just i could tell instantly like unconsciously and instantly i could tell the difference but i don't think most people could you know uh it's just it's you know, definitely it's definitely improved yeah yeah, like there's certain tells if you actually were to look at it, you know, you can you, like there's a barcode in a certain place and so on. But um, uh, doing a hardcover is something that's very, very hard to do still well on print on demand. Uh, whereas like paperbacks have gotten you know better and better. And um, uh, so in many ways, it sounds like just sort of taking the project on and like just forcing yourself to kind of learn what you don't know to make the thing as good as it possibly could be is maybe the path like that kind of learning through doing uh just as i suppose you you've learned to write these types of poems yeah i mean it's uh i have to draw the distinction between self-publishing and uh publishing through your own press mm -hmm. yeah that's because a very that's, different distinction yeah there's a lot obviously a lot more work that way around as i found because when I, when I first started writing poetry, I, I put some, I self-published some books on Amazon and, uh, yeah, that was a lot easier, but then, <laughs> then in, in setting up a press and going through all the, the, the work that entails and there's no time to go into it all now, but yeah, it's, there's a lot to do. You've got to find distribution. You've got to, uh, register every book. There's, and then, uh, we sell most of our books through our own website, so I, I spend a lot of time packaging things up, which is 
not something I ever thought I'd spend most this much time doing. Could you talk a bit about where can people go to find your website and the press's website? It's penteractpress.com. So it's P-E-N-T-E-R-A-C-T press.com. And the Stray Arts is available there. Uh, you've got books. Uh, is your bookseller still in print? It is, yeah. We, and we currently have uh, nine books published by Pentract Press. We're still sending our leaflets, but they're uh, not for long. I, I really uh, suggest people read um, or look at, depending on how you want to say, uh, Aperture by Derek Ballew. I really love that book in particular. Yeah. You, you did a brilliant job with that book. It's a beautifully uh, done book, and the colors are so vibrant. It is, yeah, I was so proud of that, that mm-hmm. edition. And, and, you know, the printers did a really good job, that the colors just stand out, don't they? Seller as well has a really great um, – pop. the cover really pops in particular with that book. And this book has yeah, – Stray Arts has a really um, – um, Stray Arts, by the way, the title is itself is a palindrome. In case you know, yeah. and um, I'm obsessed. Uh, yeah, and uh, I and, and then the other place that people, of course, can find uh, more about you and uh, see samples of your work is your uh, Twitter feed, where you publish a lot of your poetry as well. Which is what? That's Anthony underscore Etherin. Anthony Eth- underscore Etherin uh, on Twitter and uh, Petrak Press. Com. Yeah, yeah, we're, and we're on Twitter as well at, at Pentrack Press. No underscore. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, thanks so much for talking to me, and um, it's really uh, some exciting work that you're doing, and and I, and I appreciate how you kind of have broken down uh, into some very kind of practical ways somebody can approach what I think a lot of people I think look at a book like this, uh, which is you know a a, a lot of work, uh, and does you know take quite a quite a a large amount of skill to produce, but maybe um, find it as foreboding uh, and don't know necessarily how they could start uh, doing something like this. But so I, so I, I think it's uh, helpful to um, really kind of break it down in those kind of practical ways for somebody who's maybe wants to try it out, but is intimidated. Yeah, well, I hope so. Uh, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Well, thanks very much. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your uh, day and keep writing the wrong way. (laughs) 